If you'd like to support this podcast, we're on Twitter and Patreon. That is at BibleBS on Twitter and Patreon. BibleBS. Welcome to Bible Stories. Today we're talking about that bad man, Josh. Where we left off, Moses had died, unfortunately without seeing the land which had been promised to him. But he happened to be on a mountain where you could see the land. So I guess it was more of a, like, literally see the land and not a, like, you've got to have your feet on it thing. Anyway, so Moses is gone and Joshua is in charge now. And it falls to him to fulfill the promise of God to God's special people. And so we will follow his successful fulfillment of that promise in this episode. And so the story tells us that Joshua took his people and they went to a place called Gilgal. Now, small note, if I butcher any of the names in this one or in the past, it's because I don't know how to pronounce them. And yeah, it doesn't matter. It's the context of the story which matters. Anyway, so they go to this place that, uh, called Gilgal and they make that their base from which they're going to launch their campaign to take the territories around Jerusalem as you need a base from which to conduct military operations. Now, the story goes on to specifically point out that the first thing that they did was make sure that all the men were circumcised. In this action, I see Joshua attempting to ensure that he has a consolidated army, an army of one faith with one goal, as this is a much more effective fighting machine and he would not have to deal with the kind of insurrection that Moses had suffered at Mount Sinai. And so now that that business of getting the men circumcised was done, it was time to go a conquering. And first on the list of many cities to be taken in the name of the promise from God Almighty was Jericho. And so first, Joshua did what any commander worth half his salt would do, and that is he attempted to gather intelligence on his target. And so he sent some three men into the city of Jericho and they met with one prostitute named Rahab. And they stayed with her a while and were able to come back and report to him that the city had great walls and superior numbers. And as taking a walled city in this time, actually in any time, is always going to be costly in manpower, uh, they resolved to lay siege to the city. Now, according to the book, the story goes that it was one of the quickest sieges in the history of siege things because it was only seven days long. They, the book has a thing with the number seven. Anyway, so it's a seven-day long siege, and apparently all that they had to do was march around and blow the special trumpets, and the wall fell down. Now, I think a more plausible thing might have happened in that uh, the city was besieged and the blowing of trumpets and the marching around is designed to exaggerate your numbers to the besieged and remind them of the fact that there are men outside their walls who have come to kill them. It's a tactic which has been used throughout warfare and is still used to this day. And as for the walls coming down, I would imagine that those men who had infiltrated the city prior to the siege might have been working to undermine the walls as sappers. And by this means, 
an opening in the walls was made and they were able to make their way into the city. And once in the city, they did proceed to pillage it. The book says that the city was burned to the ground and only Rahab and her household were spared. But everyone else was murdered and the city was razed and the men returned to Gilgal. As this was the tactic of the time, if you could not occupy a territory, it made more sense to just rob it and use those resources to continue your campaign on. In addition, it has the added effect of making the next city you meet well aware of your willingness and ability to loot and raise. And while the version of the Bible which I am reading from makes no mention of rape, the historical record has shown that when armies pillage cities, this usually goes hand in hand with rape. I would love to imagine that perhaps this might have been that exemplary disciplined army which did not engage in such sacrilegious behavior, but this would have to be wishful thinking and romantic indulgence on my part. Anyway, so the story goes, the city was pillaged and looted and razed to the ground and Joshua did lay a curse on the city. And I quote, At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. That is to say, a curse on your children if you rebuild here. This is a theme which I find very unsettling in the book where there is this willingness to damn children for the actions of their progenitors and then this is justified by arguing that that is the will of God and it is collective punishment which sees innocence as we'll see later in the story die for no reason other than proximity having taken Jericho the next city on Joshua's target list was the city of Ai. The story tells us that Joshua did his due diligence again and sent spies to investigate the city. And this time the spies returned to him and said that they need not take the whole army. The city could be taken with fewer men. And so the story tells us that 3,000 men were sent to take Ai and they were routed. They were forced to retreat, having only killed 36 of the enemy. And this was an embarrassing defeat for Joshua. The story goes on to describe something like a fit, which reminds me of the fit, which was at least the condition that Attila the Hun was described to have been in when he lost that battle on the hill to the Romans. Anyway, so Joshua is beside himself, can't believe his loss. He's supposed to be on God's special mission. And apparently he goes to commune with God and find out like Wagwan, why have you abandoned me, O oh Lord, my supposed companion? And of course, he came to that con conclusion that superstitious people usually come to when things don't go that way, which is that if things are not going the way God promised, it must be that I did something wrong. And so they needed to find somebody who, who could have sinned so drastically as to invite the disfavor of God. And one such scapegoat was found. 
something of an inquisition was launched to discover who might have displeased God. And one, Achan, if I'm pronouncing that right, was singled out. Now, apparently Achan confessed to taking some of the plunder. And apparently this was enough to bring God's disfavor. For how dare you covet that which is not yours. I guess the plunder was Joshua's or it was God's. Anyway, the point is it wasn't Achan's. It definitely wasn't the property of the people who were killed to get the plunder. And wouldn't you have to cover people's stuff in order to go and pillage their city? So wasn't the act of taking plunder in itself the original sin of coveting? Anyway, the point is it was decided that Achan's sin of coveting the plunder and taking, I believe it was a fine Babylonian robe and some gold was what had brought the displeasure of God and so Achan needed to be dealt with. And so the story tells us they took Achan and his whole family, children included, and all of the Israelites stoned them to death. And I guess having killed these children and this man who took a robe, they imagined that they were back to good terms with their God and they proceeded to resume hostilities with the city of Ai. Having decided on a scapegoat, this scapegoat having been punished collectively by the people, this act would imagine would have convinced these superstitious people who believed that they needed to do this thing to get back on good terms with their God. Joshua was now able to go forth with his campaign. And so now that he had a better understanding of the reality of his opponent's military force, Joshua did assemble an army of, the story tells us, 30,000 of his best fighting men. And they planned to lay an ambush for the army of Ai. And so they found an opportune spot. They sent a smaller force of 5,000 men to draw out the army of Ai. That smaller army arrayed for battle against the army of Ai. As the army of Ai was greater than 5,000 men, we assume they took the bait and came to give battle to those 5,000 men. As planned, a feigned retreat was launched in that those 5,000 men acted as though they were they had lost and were retreating and the army they were fighting under the king of Ai decided to ride them down and kill them off so as not having to deal with them later on. In this way, the army was led into an ambush and the story tells us that Joshua and his army killed 12,000 men from Ai. The army then proceeded to, of course, loot and pillage the city, raise it to the ground, and the king was hanged from a tree for a day. And when the day was done, and the looting and the pillaging was done, he was cut down and left at the gate. Once again, in an attempt to instill fear into the subsequent cities that they would attempt to conquer. In this way, Joshua's army reminds me of the tactics of the Mongols which really are not the tactics of the Mongols. It is the tactic of a marauding army which is attempting to use fear 
to leverage its position in its attempt to conquer and subjugate territory. Now, having just persecuted two genocides on two cities, Joshua had become a worry for the other kings of the area. And so something of a coalition was formed against him. The book says that the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Preziites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all came together to resist this new force that was determined to kill all of them and claim their lands as its own. Another city, the city of Gibeon, took a different tactic. They sent envoys to Joshua and they claimed to be from a far place and were looking for peaceful relations that they might engage in trade and etc. etc. And in this way, they were able to secure from Joshua and his people a peace treaty. Now, the story tells us that three days later, as Joshua was going about his conquering ways, he happened to come upon the city of Gibeon. And he and his council had to have a meeting about this, for they had been led to believe that Gibeon was far away. But now Gibeon was right there and, like, they're an army that takes cities and they should like take Gibeon. And after all, like the Gibeon guys lied anyway. So aren't they forfeit? And so they had to debate. And ultimately it was decided that while they had a peace treaty with Gibeon, it would be in bad form to now loot and raise them because then that would basically mean that their word is worth for shit. And so instead they decided to vassalize the state and the book is explicit to describe the people of Gibeon as being subservient to the people of Joshua describing them as the water carriers and the woodcutters of Joshua's people now that Joshua had acquired for himself a vassal city this also meant that his enemies suddenly had a static target that they could attack and so the story tells us that the king of Jerusalem, one Adoni Zedek, took that opportunity and joined the coalition against Joshua and marched with five other kings to attack Gibeon. Now the city of Gibeon sent word to Joshua of this attack and Joshua mustered his forces to come and meet his rival kings in a large decisive battle. For if he was able to defeat the king of Jerusalem through this battle, he could fulfill that promise from God. He could get the promised land. And so the story tells us that Joshua was in fact successful. He was able to march his army overnight and reach in time to meet the five kings and a great decisive battle was held. The story goes on to say that God himself even got involved in the battle. Apparently, freezing the sun in space so that the day lasted until the battle was finished. Though, of course, if one is to imagine men fighting with melee arms for more than 24 hours consecutively, this to me seems highly unlikely, for you would get tired. Or perhaps God having wanted to see this battle invigorated these men with such energy that they were able to fight for more than 24 hours with the sun in the sky. 
The story also goes on to say that God sent down hailstones and apparently more men died from hailstones from God than died by the swords of Joshua's men. Again, I think unlikely, but alas, as it is the great epic finale battle for the promised land, as it were, not the last battle, but the great battle, for it was by this battle that they acquired Jerusalem, you can understand why a storyteller might inject a little bit of that spice, you know. Anyway, in this way, Joshua did acquire the promised land, and after doing a little tidying up, that is hanging those five kings from a couple of trees for all to see, they did occupy the city and then go on to finish the conquering of the lands for yes there was more land promised and more land to be had and so in this way jerusalem was acquired by joshua the rest of joshua's book then goes on to list the many kings that he apparently murdered in his securing of the land promised by god it then lists the lands which are still to be taken which again, is this not coveting? Didn't they kill a guy and his family over the coveting thing? It's one of the ten. Anyway, it lists lands to be taken and then it lists how the lands are to be divided amongst the tribes who are under Joshua's rule. At the end of his book, it states that he died at the ripe old age of 110 and at least he was buried in the promised land along with the bones of his ancestors that were carried with them and Joshua and the West were laid to rest there. And so ends the life of Joshua. Bad man conqueror, prophet, avatar of God, you decide. <laughs>